This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Peterborough County Warden Jay Murray Jones says he's been fighting for high-speed internet in rural Ontario for years. Say an accident happens and you need to get the ambulance or police in a hurry and you can't you can't get a call. So that's what we're doing. That's our job right now. But Bell Canada announced last week it is slashing about 200,000 households from their rural internet expansion program. It comes after the CRTC lowered prices smaller internet providers must pay to use the networks of telecom giants. It means major companies like Bell would have to charge less. Any group trying to reduce services in rural Ontario is totally unacceptable. It's got to be the other way around. The state of internet access in Canada has been the subject of considerable debate in recent years, as consumers and businesses alike assess whether Canada has kept pace with the need for universal access to fast, affordable broadband. What is now beyond debate is that there are still hundreds of thousands of Canadians without access to broadband services, and for those that have access, actual speeds may be lower than advertised and below the target set by the CRTC. Canada's Broadcast and Telecommunications Regulator. CIRA, the Canadian Internet Registration Authority, manages the .ca domain and has played an increasingly important role in Internet policy matters. I served on the CIRA board for many years, and while there, witnessed the introduction of the Internet Performance Test, which measures actual Internet speeds for residential broadband service. CIRA recently submitted a report on the urban-rural broadband divide as part of a CRTC process on potential barriers to broadband in underserved areas. Josh Tabish from CIRA, who has spent years working on Internet policy, joins me on the podcast this week to discuss the IPT, the CIRA submission to the CRTC, and the future of universal access to broadband in Canada. Josh, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Okay, it's great to have you here this week. Uh, before we get get started on CIRA and uh, the Internet Performance Test and the issues around rural broadband, how are you doing uh, during this uh, pandemic? Uh, I think we're doing as good as anyone can be doing right now. Um, you know, my friends and I and have been finding fun ways to stay in touch with each other. We've started playing trivia every other week on a... Uh, Google Hangout, and that's been a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, I've been getting more acquainted with my Netflix library, for sure, um, but also spending some time getting outside and, and really trying to see the city in a new way. So, you know, it's it's just about developing new habits. But, uh, you know, as far as this strange period of history goes, I, I think things are okay. Okay, I'm glad to hear it. So, as you know, I served on the, the board of CIRA, the Canadian Internet Registration Authority, for quite a number of years, uh, actually in two different stints on the board, first when the organization was first established, and then more recently over a six-year period. Uh, But not everybody knows what CIRA is and what it does. So why don't we start there? Can you just tell us a bit what what CIRA is and what it does? For sure. So CIRA is the Canadian Internet Registration Authority. And, you know, we're the group 
best known for managing the .ca domain. So for folks out there listening, anytime you head over to a website like ebay.ca, we run the network that gets your phone or computer to that website. Uh, In addition to .ca, we have a number of other programs. We create new cybersecurity products, including one we just launched recently called Canadian Shield, which provides free cybersecurity protection for Canadians. Uh, And we do a number of other activities that help promote a trusted internet in Canada. Um, Some folks may be familiar with our $1 million community investment program granting initiative, where we give uh, money out to projects across the country to help not-for-profits and other community-based organizations and researchers uh, contribute to Canada's internet. Um, And we also run projects like the Internet Performance Test, um, which helps produce real-world data on uh, the state of Canada's internet. Yeah, that's great. And yes, Sarah is, really is involved in a, in a far broader range of activities than, than merely domain names, although the domain names remain, of course, the, the biggest part of what it does. The One of the activities that it's involved with is this internet performance test, and I know it's been active for several years now. Can you talk a bit about the origins of the program, what you're measuring, and how it works? Our internet performance test lets anyone with an internet connection test just how fast their connection actually is. The test lives at performance.zero.ca and takes less than a minute to complete. It basically provides internet users with information about the real-world performance of their connection that they can then compare against the service they're paying for. Uh, Once the test is done, you also get a detailed readout um, on other key metrics of internet performance, such as jitter, latency, and packet loss. But, you know, the, the thing that most consumers will be interested in is what are the download and upload speeds they're receiving. Since May of 2015, when the project first launched, Canadians have performed over 640,000 tests on the platform. Um, the data not only helps consumers understand whether or not they're getting what they pay for, but it also helps policymakers understand which rural, remote, and indigenous communities need to be upgraded uh, in terms of internet access most urgently. Uh, It, of course, also is super helpful for assessing where there are gaps in suburban and even urban areas, for example, in neighborhoods that aren't as well served as others. Um, I think the goal with the internet performance test was to create uh, a neutral, independent data set that researchers and policymakers and and advocates and others could use to understand the state of connectivity in Canada. Um, Obviously, you know, CIRA doesn't sell internet services. We're not an internet service provider. So we don't really have a dog in this race or a horse in this race is actually the expression. (laughs) But we don't really have a horse in this race. Um, We just want to make sure that there is a good set of real-world performance data available to folks who want to understand where the gaps exist in Canada. Okay. And so that data that gets collected, hundreds of thousands of, of tests being run, all of that is is openly available for anyone to, to use as they see fit? That's right. So we bring the data together and then help work with uh, anybody who's looking at improving connectivity in their region. So, for example, we've partnered with just over a dozen municipalities across the country, ranging from Kelowna out west, 
uh, to uh, Pictou County in Nova Scotia in the east. Uh, and we've worked with them to help those regions get a better understanding of where the gaps in connectivity are uh, locally. We also have partnered with Innovation Science and Economic Development Canada to help them crowdsource real-world data about the quality of internet connections across the country so that they can help understand where to fill in the gaps. Well, that's interesting. Can you tell me a bit more about that ICED program? For those that don't know, uh, that's the former Ministry of, Minister, Ministry of Industry in Canada. That's right. So... Uh, back in, I believe it was the summer of 2019, um, I said put together a landing page for their efforts to connect all Canadians. Um, and the, the, pay, the landing page has in it uh, a link to a test, which is powered by CIRA's internet performance tool, so that anybody who is curious about what efforts the government are making to improve connectivity can test their own connection and, con and um, contribute to the, uh, their understanding of where the gaps in the country exist. So, so basically, um, I said has a version of our tool that they are hosting and pointing internet users and municipalities and folks around the country to, to get a better sense of where their universal broadband fund can help fill in the gaps in connectivity. Okay, interesting. So you, it's interesting to see the, the range of different ways you've used this tool already, or the tools being used already um, at different levels of government to better understand the kinds of speeds and network access people have. And then, of course, one would hope policy might follow. Now, speaking of policy, you recently, or CIRA recently participated in a CRTC process on potential barriers to deployment of broad, broadband networks in underserved areas in Canada. Can you tell us before, about, before we get to the CIRA submission, a little bit about that CRTC process? For sure. So like any CRTC process, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a long story, but I'm going to make it as quick as possible. So let's do a, a quick tour down uh, CRTC memory lane. In 2016, the CRTC declared broadband internet access a basic telecommunications service and set speed targets of 50 megabits per second download and 10 megabits per second upload uh, to be available to all Canadians. In 2018, they established a broadband fund uh, and some criteria for funding. So you may recall that they put up approximately $750 million uh, over the course of a few years to help build out rural broadband infrastructure and improve connectivity in underserved regions. In 2019, they launched the first call for proposals to help build out rural internet access. So um, they you know, opened the call for proposals. And this past December, they announced this proceeding to re-examine some of the barriers to broadband deployment in underserved areas. So again, rural, remote, and indigenous communities. In the preamble to this consultation, the commission recognized that there's a problem. You know, they basically said, while we're making progress towards the BSO speed targets, um, the basic 5010 speeds are still only available to 85% of Canadian households, 40.8% of households in rural areas, and about 31% of households on First Nation reserves. So this proceeding wanted to focus pretty specifically on a few questions. 
First, whether access to high-capacity transport facilities are holding back rural deployments. Uh, second, whether access to poles and conduits are holding back deployment. And third, whether there are any other barriers to rural deployment that they should know about. So by participating in this proceeding, CIRA hopes to show how the absence of real-world internet performance data acts as a barrier to expanding broadband services. And there's at least two ways that, that this lack of uh, real-world data acts as a barrier. First, relying on the availability of advertised speeds in a region makes it difficult to assess which communities actually need better internet access. You know, we, we hear all the time there's a huge difference between advertised speeds and the speeds that end users actually receive. And we've all heard stories about people out in the country who pay higher prices, uh, or sorry, who rather who pay for higher speeds but feel like they never receive it. Uh, relying on the availability of advertised speeds in mapping connectivity and making decisions about where to invest in broadband infrastructure misses those users. Um, because, of course, the map will show that a region has high quality, high speed access, but the user's actual experience is that their, you know, their performance is struggling, they video calls don't work, blah, blah, blah. So our tool helps fill that gap. I think the second way that uh, the lack of real world performance data um, creates a barrier to real deployment is it makes it difficult to determine whether projects that receive funding actually deliver on their promise. So in that 2016 decision, the CRTC said, you know, the speeds, I, I quote, these speeds are to be the actual speeds delivered, not those merely advertised. This was in their conversation about 5010 and how, what we're gonna need to make sure we get there and what the targets ought to be. So our tool can help fund administrators evaluate whether funded projects are living up to their promise and delivering uh, the speeds that they told the funding administrator they were going to deliver. There's a kind of an additional part here, which is that the barriers to broadband proceeding that's happening right now is also really focused on this question of high capacity transport facilities and whether or not access to those or the availability of those is part of the problem for rural areas. And there's a way in which our IPT data can be can be helpful here. Um, you know, in an area where our internet performance test data shows that the maximum speed in the region or the neighborhood is nowhere near the CRTC's 50 megabit per second target, you know, interested parties can look closer at that region to understand, okay, is that because there's limited access to fiber transport? Is that because there's insufficient middle mile facilities? It really helps people trying to diagnose these connectivity problems uh, and gives them a way to heat map where gaps may exist, whether that's in last mile facilities, uh, as we often focus on, or if that's in you know, high capacity transport facilities as well. Uh, and in fact, um, some research have, researchers have done exactly this. They've, they've taken our data and used it to benchmark regional speeds uh, against the CRTC targets to help identify higher priority areas for connectivity upgrades. Um, so that's, that's a way in which our data is very useful to the commission and other interveners uh, in understanding 
where gaps in rural areas and barriers exist. Okay. I mean, it sounds like there's some really valuable interventions or potential there for the data to help inform policymaking. So good reason to get involved. Uh, you obviously used IPT data as the basis for your submission. And, and what are some of the big takeaways from it? Yeah, I mean, the findings of our analysis weren't pretty. Um, the kind of top level finding was that in the month of April, rural download speeds were nearly 12 times slower than those enjoyed by urban Canadians. Um, that's a big difference. And rural download speeds were measured at a, at a median of 3.78 megabits per second, while the urban speeds were measured at 44.09 megabits per second. You don't need to be a statistician to know that that's a pretty big difference. Um, like, you know, honestly, when we saw the results the first time as we were putting this all together, uh, we had to pick our jaws up off our desks. I mean, it, it was crazy. Um, the other thing we found is that since the COVID-19 pandemic began, median speeds have basically continued to fall for rural users. So if you look at the data, which is available uh, on our website and on the record of the CRTC proceeding, you'll see that typical download speeds varied between four and seven megabits per second. Well, since about February, those speeds have fallen to well below four megabits per second. And we're going to keep watching that. Um, we're going to be updating that analysis in the coming weeks and months as we get more data in to see how the trend continues. Um, but, you know, regardless of what COVID's effect have been on rural internet speeds, the, it's not a COVID-specific problem. The, the gap was big all year, you know. Um, and in fact, urban speeds have actually started to climb since the COVID-19 pandemic began. Our data shows that in over the last few weeks that urban download speeds have actually peaked at an annual high of nearly 44 megabits per second. So, you know, I think it's pretty obvious, but it's worth stating uh, you know, urban internet users have a lot more options to upgrade their service. They have a lot more choice in the market. And, and what this suggests is that, or what the data suggests rather, is that if rural speeds are dropping and urban speeds are increasing, the digital divide appears to be getting bigger during COVID-19, not smaller. And I think that's a real red flag. Can I just ask you, you know, how reliable is the the CIRA data, the, the numbers you, you've thrown out in terms of what you found, both at a rural, in rural communities, but also in urban communities? Are, are those numbers consistent with some of the other studies that we see on the issue? So we feel pretty good about the numbers. Um, we think the, the number of tests that we've based this on is, is pretty significant. Um, and we're, we're really happy with the analysis we've done. You know, one of the ways that our data is unique is that there's not a lot of other studies out there that separate rural speeds from urban speeds. Most testing data you see, particularly from some of the big um, testing companies like SpeedTest, don't differentiate between these two geographies, and they kind of report one big number. And while that big number is maybe useful for giving you a, a rough yardstick of where we sit internationally, it's not terribly useful for policymakers who are specifically trying to fill gaps in rural connectivity. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit just about kind of what the, what the sample was. You know, the sample was based on about 87,000 urban tests 
and about 32,000 rural tests between May and April. Uh, that was May of 2019 and April of 2020. Um, the, the test is, is based on the MLab network diagnostic tool that's backed by Google and Princeton and New America's Open Technology Institute, as well as some other major players in the sector. So I think we're in good company in terms of who's using the test to derive studies about internet performance. Um, some people wonder, you know, why, okay, we get this on social media all the time. Why are your test speeds so much lower than say, you know, speed tests? And I think, you know, it's important to remind folks that our test is, is trying to, is trying to assess real world network conditions, not the fastest point between the user and their ISP. So speed test and, and or test like it, I should say, um, often try to assess speed uh, between the end user and their internet service provider. What our test tries to do is test the speed of the connection outside of that internet service provider network outside of that architecture. So we go to a, what's called an off-net server, uh, and that gives a more accurate sense of what the real world conditions are experienced by the end user. Uh, but of course, the results are a lot less favorable to the internet service provider. Um, I think it's worth, well, and, and while we're talking about other tests, you know, if even speed test, whose results tend to be favorable to the ISPs, um, found that there's been a decrease in overall average internet speeds for all of Canada since the COVID-19 pandemic began. So I think that's kind of a, a useful reference point as we understand and interpret our data. Now, speaking of understanding and interpreting our data, you know, there's a couple caveats here, right? Since the results are crowdsourced, um, the internet performance test does a really good job of telling you about the quality of connectivity where users have tested their connections. Um, it doesn't tell you much about where connectivity doesn't exist. So that's why it's important to pair this data with other connectivity data, whether that's an ISP's own UCLA reports or the CRTC and ICED's National Broadband Data Project. You know, bring these together and, and to help develop um, a more comprehensive, richer, accurate picture of connectivity in Canada, uh, one data set by itself isn't going to give you the whole story. Right. In other words, you can provide some pretty important information for real world speeds. I think the, that point is really an important one for users that have that access and are subscribing and then using your tool. But of course, there's a whole group of people out there that don't even have access to begin with, and they've got to be accounted for as well. In some ways, they, they face an even bigger issue. They don't even have access to begin with, never mind access at speeds that, based on your data, are significantly lower at rural communities compared to urban ones. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, again, our analysis focused on, on people who have connections. Um, but I think it's really difficult for folks in urban parts of the country or, or people out there listening who have solid connections to imagine some of the difficulties that come with poor or no access. But I can share a couple stories that I've dug up over the last little bit that I think illustrate the point, uh, particularly during COVID-19. So 
This was reported in the CBC that in Alberta, rural schools have set up outdoor bins for students without internet to pick up and drop off hard copy assignments. In Manitoba, the Northern Garden Hill First Nation was forced to cancel the remainder of their school year, citing poor internet connectivity and a lack of household computer adoption as big contributing factors. Here in Ottawa, where I live, uh, the Ottawa Carleton District School Board is telling students to hunker down in school parking lots to access free Wi-Fi if they don't have the internet at home. You know, that is that is a really tough spot to be in as a student or as a family with poor or no internet connectivity. And it's worth reminding, I think, the listeners out there that right now one in 10 households in this country don't have a residential internet connection. That's a lot of people. And that impact is only magnified during widespread school closures and social distancing. Um, you know, to, to make it concrete again, a comment, I, we shared some of the work we've been doing at Sierra on Reddit, and one of the commenters on Reddit said, you know, they identified as uh, living in a rural area, and they said, look, I only get 120 gigabytes a month on my connection. I have to do three one-hour Google Meets to keep up with my classes, plus trying to use the internet for my homework. Um, Trying to use the internet for personal uses just isn't going to be possible. That This basically means no more Netflix, YouTube, or social media for me. I mean, people are having to make really tough decisions about where they use their data right now in environments where connectivity is scarce. Um, so I think that, you know, this is the reality for tons of Canadians across this country. I think we can do a lot better. Sierra thinks we can do a lot better. You know, rural connections that could kind of eke by for most services are now suddenly way more taxed with people at home. Um, you know, if if the connection was okay when there was only a few folks in the house on a couple devices during certain hours of the day, that's kind of one thing. But if all of a sudden you got three kids at home and they're each doing video conferencing for their schooling and you're trying to upload big files for work, I mean you know, that taxes that rural internet connection pretty quickly. Um, and, and I think a lot of people are feeling that right now. I guess I'll just make one more point here too, which is like a lot of people, particularly those on social media, have said, well, that's the choice you make by moving out to a rural area. They've said connectivity is never going to be the same for rural people as it is for urban people. They've said, oh, boo-hoo, you can't watch Netflix. Um, we're not saying that everybody in Canada needs a Lamborghini. We're saying that everybody in Canada deserves to have access to the same quality of highways. And that, I think, is the spirit of the 2016 CRTC decision. And that is the positive vision that we want to see for rural Canadians. Given the, the truly compelling arguments to ensure that there is that, that, that equality of access for all Canadians, or at least a minimum standard for all Canadians, um, what has the government been doing uh, to try to address some of these rural broadband concerns? So the, to date, the Trudeau government has estimated that it's going to cost about 
$6 billion, some of it public, some of it private, um, between now and 2030 to get everyone connected to the CRTC's 5010 speeds. A couple weeks ago, Minister Monsef, uh, the Minister for Rural Economic Development, announced that the government is going to do what they can to speed up the rollout of funding for broadband. Now, in terms of what they're considering, things are a little in the air. We know that Minister Monsef said that all options are on the table right now. That was reported in the Wire report. Um, this means that the government could increase the overall amount of funding for connecting rural and remote areas beyond the $1.7 billion in their upcoming Universal Broadband Fund. Um, that fund was supposed to launch this spring, and the timeline is a bit fuzzy right now. Um, but, you know, overall, in terms of what's new or, or what we can expect, the details appear to be pretty TBA. Um, since, uh, it's worth pointing out that since Minister Monsef made that announcement, um, the Conservative MP, Michelle Rempel-Garner, came out swinging with a plan to connect everybody by 2021, which is certainly a, a bold uh, upgrade from 2030. Um, whether that timeline is realistic or not, I think we can all agree that for rural internet users, waiting until 2030 to hit targets that were set in 2016 feels an awfully long ways away. It does, it does. You know, why don't we close with, with this question? It feels like we've been debating and dealing with these digital divide issues in Canada, specifically around broadband connectivity. I mean, quite literally for decades, I can recall broadband task force almost 20 years ago, looking at some of these same sorts of issues. You know, why do you think that this divide remains? And do you have any sense that there is any real hope to bridge that divide? Or, or is this ultimately uh, an issue where the relative speeds between urban and rural are going to remain the same and the lack of access uh, for many Canadians also likely to remain the same. Yeah, I mean, I totally hear you. I'm not that old and I've been doing this for nearly a decade now. And um, and you're right, you know, there's there's no single reason that the digital divide remains. It's pretty complicated. There's a lot of economic reasons, a lot of technical reasons, a lot of geographic reasons, and there's really no silver bullet to fix it. It's gonna take a lot of work, but I think universal connectivity can happen pretty quickly if there's political will to make it happen. One thing that's been amazing over the last couple of weeks is seeing MPs from across the political spectrum all recognize the urgency of providing Canadians with high quality internet access as soon as possible. This is clearly not a partisan issue anymore. The question of whether we need to do more is settled. The question we need to answer now is how quickly and how much are we willing to spend to make it happen? And I think in that context, COVID-19 felt a bit like a wake-up call for policymakers on connectivity. You know, for weeks, we've heard story after story of rural internet users struggling to keep up with lagging connections. And, and so it's great to see the response coming. Um, you know, I think up to this point, the internet has been the popsicle sticks and hot glue that's been holding the economy together, our education system together, uh, our social calendars together. Uh, and so we really applaud everyone who's standing up and saying we need to do more. And we're really keen to learn more about Minister Monsef's commitments, 
Um, and we're happy to assist her and her colleagues in, in providing expertise to help get all, connect, uh, all Canadians online as soon as possible. Okay, well, certainly the the work that Sarah has been doing around providing a strong foundation of data, I think, is is an essential part of of developing good policy. And so I, I'm sure there there are many, especially those that don't have the kinds of speeds that the CRTC is targeted, much less even have access that that are grateful. And I'm grateful as well for you coming on and ta- talking a bit about the program and about this longstanding, really troubling issue. So thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.